there's nothing quite like being present in the flesh to enact an enfleshed faith. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. One morning in January 2020, I woke up to a special kind of pain that I have never experienced before or since. After spending the next 15 hours curled up in a ball, uh, including on an airplane flight, I got the test results back that revealed that the source of my agony was a ruptured appendix. Bummer, but I've had other surgeries, so I'm thinking, all right, take it out, send me home. Uh, then I learned that's apparently not how it goes when your appendix ruptures. I had to stay in that hospital for eight nights before they would release me. Despite the surgery going according to plan, despite zero setbacks or complications, that made no sense to me, eight nights, until the medical team explained to me on a third grade level, which I appreciated, that poison had spilled into my insides. Right? So if they discharged me while there was still even a little infection remaining in my abdominal cavity, that little infection could become a big infection, and I could quickly die. So for that reason, they were determined to make sure that they were sure that they were sure that they were sure that any infection had been completely eliminated before sending me home. Today, we're going to open ourselves up to hear the words of the risen Jesus to a church that had become too tolerant of a little infection. Would you open with me to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, if you haven't already? Thanks, Genevieve, for reading it. Uh, the Christians in Pergamum, as you heard, are doing so well in so many ways. And that's saying something, because Pergamum was a hard place to be a Christian. A few background notes on Pergamum that will help us understand this letter better. Uh, here are the ruins of Pergamum, modern-day Turkey. When you read about all the different gods and goddesses who had worship centers in this city, it almost, you almost get the feel that this city's motto must have been something like, you get a temple, you get a temple, you get a temple. Among the many gods and goddesses granted temples in Pergamum, you have a huge altar to Zeus that's there. Uh, I actually took this picture myself when I was there 17 years ago now. Uh, this would have been the altar right here standing up on this. You can see the steps going up to it. Um, you also have the worldwide center of worship to Asclepius there, who's the god of healing. The symbol happens to be a snake. Both of those so-called deities, Zeus and Asclepius, were commonly prayed to using the address, Our Savior. Our Savior Zeus, our Savior Asclepius, but that's not all. As in many cities whose churches are addressed in Revelation, Guild feasts, guild feasts were pretty central to social and professional life in the city of Pergamum. A guild feast was when, where all, all the people who, uh, in a city who work in a certain profession would come together for a party slash meeting. The government supervised these guilds, so you couldn't be licensed, so to speak, to practice your craft unless you joined the guild. You couldn't be listed in the yellow pages. You couldn't, your business wouldn't show up on people's Google searches for carpenters unless you were in the Carpenters Guild, for example. 
when you'd show up to the temple for the guild feast, they'd ask you for your ticket, so to speak, which would have often been a colored stone that you'd been given to verify that you were indeed part of that guild. And you'd say a prayer or offer a sacrifice to a patron god or goddess of the guild, and they'd let you into the party where everyone's drinking and eating food that had been sacrificed to that god or goddess, while surrounded by male and female prostitutes who were hard at work. If you think maybe about alcohol-fueled holiday parties that you've had to attend for your job, and if you think about your coworker maybe who most pushes the limits of what's appropriate at those parties, the sexual activity taking place at these guild feasts would have made even that coworker blush. So that's what life was like in Pergamum. But maybe one more historical note. This is pretty significant to understanding this letter. The city of Pergamum had dramatically waned in influence a century or two before this letter was written, but had experienced an incredible rebound when they won the right to be the home of the first ever in the world temple to a Roman emperor. It was Caesar Augustus, the emperor who was in charge when Jesus was born. When he accepted deification status, meaning he'd be worshipped as a god now, many cities bid for the right to build his temple, Pergamum won. So Pergamum is almost like the birthplace, and by extension the epicenter, of emperor worship in the Roman Empire. So much so that the proconsul of the whole region, the guy who was in charge of enforcing emperor worship by penalty of the sword, he was stationed here in Pergamum to carry out enforcements. Thanks for bearing with me on that. In the coming moments, it's against that backdrop that we need to understand Jesus' words to Pergamum. If you're just joining us for the first time in this series, we're not reading these ancient letters from the risen Jesus to these first century churches as some sort of detached historical exercise or as some sort of Bible trivia. Instead, we believe these letters are inspired by the Holy Spirit to be beneficial for all churches and all times and places. And so we're looking at these letters as part of our You Are Here series this winter and spring in which we're trying to discern, with the help of God's Spirit, where we stand as a church in 2022. In other words, we're looking to use these letters as mirrors. Not to wallow in self-introspection uh, over here in this ditch, to beat ourselves up. That's not the point. We're also wary, though, of the temptation to be presumptuous and complacent over here in this ditch. So we're using these few months to look around at each other here at North Sub and say, hey, let's make sure that we have true assurance in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we're walking this path in the middle. That sort of deep, solid confidence that because we've trusted him and his death and resurrection, we do actually belong to him and are actually headed for glory. Our, re our responding to these letters in faith and repentance is confirming evidence that's meant to further assure us that we do, in fact, belong to Christ. And I've been so moved by so many of you who have actually reached out to me in just even in the last few weeks to share stories of how God's Spirit has produced change in your heart and life already in the first few weeks of this series. That's, that's what it's about. That's the sort of confirmation that we're hoping this series provides, that produces that Christ is, in fact, at work in our midst. Amen? That's enough setup. Here's how today's passage works. We can fruitfully explore this passage by looking at how it answers these four questions. 
writing, what's good, what's bad, what must be done. Who's writing, what's good in Pergamum, what's bad in Pergamum, what must be done. First, who's writing? We'll ask this each of the seven weeks because though it's always the Apostle John recording the words of Jesus as directed by God uh, through his Holy Spirit and delivered under the oversight of the Holy Spirit through angels, uh, nevertheless, in each of the seven letters, Jesus highlights a different aspect of who he is. So how does Jesus introduce himself to the Christians who live in the hometown of the proconsul who executes those who don't worship the emperor? How does Jesus introduce himself to the Christians who have seen the proconsul's sword run through at least one of their fellow church members and who are wondering, maybe, who's going to fall next under that sword? Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. That's the shortest of the seven introductions in Revelation. Ten words in Greek. But can you imagine what those ten words meant to the people of Pergamum when they heard this read? Like, I can't imagine being the person who was tasked with reading this letter to the congregation when it showed up in Pergamum. I bet the reader had to stop and put the parchment down right here at this point. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Did they all just look at each other and weep and say, okay, there's another sword. Reminds me of the scene in The Lion King. Spoiler alert if you haven't gotten around to watching it in the last 25 years. Uh, when Simba and Nala are almost certainly about to get torn to pieces by the hyenas. But then what happens? Mufasa, Mufasa's roar shakes the, the rocks and sends the hyenas running away, right? If the Christians at Pergamum are Simba and Nala, that day is coming. The proconsul with his sword will one day come face to face with the one, with the sword. And the terrifying sword wielder of Pergamum will bow his knee on that day, willingly or unwillingly. I'm thinking about who might need to hear that this morning, right at the outset. I think about Ebby and Esther. And uh, as you plan to go back to a place where Christians have fallen under the sword and are falling under the sword, Lord Jesus still wields the sharp, double-edged sword. And I've been a, a little bit of a mess reading and reading about and praying for our Ukrainian brothers and sisters. Lord, in their crisis, may they be reminded that you hold the sharp, double-edged sword. I'm not convinced that these ten words from Jesus are irrelevant to us here on the North Shore. We're under a pressure of our own. And though it's not the threat of the sword just yet, may we remember while facing mockery and exclusion that our defender does hold a sharp double-edged sword that he will one day use in judgment. 
Amen. And beyond that, who knows? Some of you, some of you in Gen Z or Generation Alpha, I guess we're calling us, younger folks may live to experience a day in which there is real danger of the sword associated with worshiping Jesus right here in the corner of Lake Cook and Lost Mutiny. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. That's who's writing. Now, what's good in Pergamum? It's going well. In each of the five letters that contain praise from Jesus to the churches for things they're doing well, Jesus' praise to the church is introduced with the words, I know. Here in the praise section of the letter to Pergamum, Grant Osborne points out there are really three aspects of what Jesus says he knows. He knows their situation, he knows their faithfulness, and he knows their endurance. Their situation, their faithfulness, and their endurance. First, he knows their situation. I know where you live, Jesus says, where Satan's throne is. Now, these other cities are wicked too. Why is Pergamum where Satan's throne is? A number of possibilities have been suggested. Uh, maybe it's because of the massive altar to Zeus I showed you a few minutes ago that from afar would have looked like a gigantic throne. Maybe it's because of the guild feasts. Those are everywhere. Uh, or because of the worship center of Asclepius, whose symbol was a serpent. All those are possible. But I'm persuaded that it's first and foremost because of Pergamon's role as the enforcement center of emperor worship. Two reasons why. First, emperor worship is the main pressure being addressed in the book of Revelation overall. It would have almost certainly been more tempting for the people of Pergamum to worship the emperor than to worship Asclepius or any of the other Greco-Roman gods and goddesses because of the amount of pressure that was placed on them. Second, remember, Satan's name means the adversary. The heart of his mission is to be our adversary, to steal and kill and destroy us. If that's what he's about, then doesn't it make sense that the place where he makes his home is the place from which the sword wielder wields his sword against Christians in the most maximally adversarial way? I know where you live, Jesus says, where Satan's throne is. I know you live there. And that got me thinking, what would the risen Jesus say about where we live? Like if he said, I know where you live, North Sub, where, what would come next? Maybe this isn't where Satan has his throne, so to speak. But make no mistake, Satan is at work in Chicago's northern suburbs. The thing is, it's not the kind of blatant, out-in-the-open, violent opposition of Christians as it was in Pergamum. Maybe here it's more like the quote from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, where one demon says to the other, Hey, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, the world, while really the world is finding its place in him. And I wonder, how excited is Satan when North Shore folks get promotions and raises? Because he knows it's just the moment when we're most open to inviting this world to make itself just a little more at home in us. So I don't know, maybe Jesus would say something like, I know where you live, North Sub, where Satan is lulling a whole region to sleep using the subtle tool of prosperity. So Jesus knows the situation in Pergamum. He knows our situation. He also knows their present faithfulness in the midst of that situation. Yet, 
you are holding on to my name. Despite the situation around you, you are holding on to my name. In other words, these Christians haven't given up on Jesus just because Satan decided to make their hometown his hometown. They said, I'm clinging to Jesus and good luck trying to loosen my grip on him. But Jesus also knows their endurance. And by that I mean their faithfulness hasn't just been a flash in the pan, single moment thing. They've stayed strong through severe persecution. Here's how Jesus elaborates on his previous comment regarding their faithfulness. And you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. Notice Satan's resonance being associated with the killing of Christians. But one martyr in particular is named here, a guy named Antipas. We don't know much more about him besides that he clung to Jesus all the way to his death. And as a result, Jesus calls Antipas the same name that Jesus called himself earlier in the book. Remember that? Back in chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus called himself the faithful witness. He said, I'm the faithful witness. Now as Antipas holds fast to Jesus at the cost of his life, he gets to hear Jesus speak those precious words over him. You're my faithful witness, Antipas. The church at Pergamum is commended because despite the fact that they watched Antipas die for his relationship with Jesus, they didn't give up. They endured through that wave of persecution and are still holding firm despite the possibility that that sort of persecution could flare up again at any moment. Now, let's pause right there. Surely, Jesus would never rebuke a church that's going through all that. Right? Surely, Jesus will read the room, so to speak, right? And hold off on bringing up any problems that may exist in Pergamum. Like, surely, this church that's living in Satan's backyard and watching their friends be killed, any criticism of them can wait until another generation that doesn't have it so tough. Right? Wrong. Unlike the letter we read last week, this is not one of the two churches that escapes rebuke. Jesus has a challenge for the church at Pergamum. Uh, what is it? Let's take a look at verses 14 and 15. Here's Jesus. But I have a few things against you. Why is this not like last week's letter that was all praise? Surely Smyrna hadn't attained perfection, yet Jesus encouraged them exclusively. The reason for the difference is that there is a serious problem taking place here in Pergamum. Namely, there's a false teaching that's being allowed to flourish. A disease is being allowed to fester and to spread. And Jesus sees that the church is not taking decisive action to stop it. What is this disease teaching? Well, Jesus says it's the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. What's this about? Balaam is not the name of a church member at Pergamum. Jesus is actually referencing a story from the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. Maybe you remember it. It's in Numbers 22 to 24, those chapters. King Balak of Moab wants to defeat Israel, and he hears about this guy Balaam, who is a prophet of the Lord whose words tend to come true. So he offers Balaam a massive paycheck to pronounce a curse over Israel. That way Israel will be weakened, and then Balak can come in and defeat them militarily. Balaam sees that paycheck and says, headed your way, Balak. 
But after a series of events, including a talking donkey, which is quite comical, Balaam doesn't pronounce a curse on Israel, which is very frustrating for Balak, whose plans are thwarted for the moment. But in the chapters after that, Numbers 25 and forward, Balaam gets a different idea. It's not spelled out, but when we read between the lines of what's going on, it seems to be something like this. Hey, Balak, you won't beat the Israelites taking them head on. Their God's too strong. He'll, he'll oppose you. But if you can get the people of God to turn their backs on him, to commit idolatry and sexual immorality with your own people, Balak, then it's possible that God will remove his hedge of protection around them and they'll be weakened from the inside to the point at which you can have your way with them. And that's exactly what happens. If you make a note to check out Numbers 25 and Numbers 31 in particular, the whole incident that goes on there is attributed to Balaam's influence. And what's at the core of the teaching of Balaam is idolatry and immorality. Getting God's people to add in worship of other gods besides the Lord, that's idolatry. And getting them to be okay with sexual practices their God had forbidden, that's immorality. It's an inside-out approach to defeating God's people. Like a disease that spreads from within until it completely overtakes the person. And the church at Pergamum includes people who hold to a new version of those same old teachings of Balaam. You see that? In the same way, Jesus says, you also, he connects the new teachings to the old. And who are these people within the church recycling the teachings of Balaam? They're called the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans come up twice in these letters in Revelation. We've already seen the first of these instances. The church at Ephesus is commended for vigorously opposing the Nicolaitans. We don't have a lot on the Nicolaitans outside of Revelation, so it's hard to know exactly what they are teaching. That said, there's enough right here in Revelation 2 and in the writings of the early church fathers that we can put together a reasonably plausible reconstruction. Let me give it a try. Imagine you're a Christian in a place like Ephesus or Pergamum. You're under massive pressure to acknowledge Caesar as Lord, to acknowledge the Greco-Roman gods as saviors, to participate in guild feasts where the food had been sacrificed to idols and sex was rampant. But you're staying strong. You've declined membership to the guild, which severely limits your ability to find work, but you're finding a way to scrape by. Maybe the Christians in town hire you to do their carpentry. You're sensing the raised eyebrows and whispers of your neighbors as you walk down the street, but so far you've been able to feed your family without eating food sacrificed to idols, and you haven't yet been in a situation in which you had to pray to Caesar or die. Then one day, a friend pulls you aside after church, a church friend. He says, listen, I see you struggling. Here's the thing. Zeus, Asclepius, they're not real, right? You know they're not real, so, so what's the harm? in worshiping Jesus alone in your heart, but throwing the Romans a few of the phrases that they want to hear from us. Caesar is Lord. What's the harm in bowing your knee to Caesar and acknowledging as Lord? Jesus knows your heart. He knows you don't really mean it. But 
why, hey, a few of us, we're Jesus people still. Don't worry about us. We've been going to the feasts. We've been mumbling the prayers. We'll eat the food because it's just food. And we've gotten the Romans off our back so we can live to worship Jesus another day. Just think about it. Because I hate to see you going through what you're going through in such anguish. What do you think? It seems like the teachings of the Nicolaitans were something resembling that. How tempted would you be to join the Nicolaitans? And if you wouldn't be especially tempted, how would you handle it if some of your fellow church members were going down that road? That's the thing, right? Did you notice? The rebuke is not, I have this against you. You are following the teachings of the Nicolaitans. It's not what it says. What's it say? You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. You also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In other words, the precise problem in Pergamum is not that the readers of this letter were giving in to idolatry and immorality. No. Jesus says, the problem is you're making room for this false teaching in your church. You may not have bought into this, but you're part of the problem anyway because you're allowing this disease to flourish. When the Ephesians, in contrast, had a Nicolaitan group arise in their church, they attacked it head on. Chapter 2, verse 6. And so Jesus said, well done. It's exactly right. In Pergamum, where the church response is far less aggressive to the Nicolaitans, it's not all that hard to imagine their justifications for tolerating the disease, is it? You can imagine them saying, listen, there aren't that many in our church that have actually bought into this. It's a handful of people. What's the harm? Yeah, most of us don't agree with them, but who are we to be judgmental about it? Right? I worship with these people each week. I've seen them raise their hands in worship. I know they give to the poor. They seem to be real believers. So even though I don't personally agree with them, I, I feel convicted that I shouldn't bow my knee to Caesar. I guess it's within the range of diversity to Christian opinion. Jesus says, stop. Your job is to cut the disease out. Don't let it spread any further. Okay, so you are here time, which we're doing in this series after all. What about North Sub? In this respect, to what degree do we have some who hold to the teachings of Balaam, the teachings of the Nicolaitans? First of all, let me just say this. If you're just visiting here today and you're like, what in the world is going on? Hear me say that we are thrilled that you're here, no matter what you believe. The problem in Pergamum wasn't that there were casual observers coming in for a visit who held these beliefs. The problem was that these beliefs were allowed in their midst. In other words, among those counted as part of the church, what we would consider our membership. So if you're not a member of this church, please listen in, explore. You're our honored guest. This challenge is not for you. The question is actually, to what degree have we tolerated church members who hold to the teachings of Balaam, the teachings of the Nicolaitans? Because we don't face anything like mandatory emperor worship today, there's no identical temptation. 
Yet, it's worth thinking through and preparing ourselves for a few different situations before we face them. Maybe some of you have faced them. Like, what would I do if my employer told me that I had to put happy pride on my email signature during June and required me to wear a rainbow flag shirt to the accompanying corporate event? Would I offer that worship at the altar of the God of sexual self-expression? Or what would I do if visiting a church on vacation only to find that at this church I happen to have wandered into there are MAGA flags being passed out and the congregation starting a Let's Go Brandon chant? Would I offer that worship at the God of political allegiance? Or what would I do if the league that my kid needs to be in to maximize his talents schedules games on Sunday morning? Would I offer that worship at the altar of the God of my kid's athletic enjoyment and success? The gods worshipped around here are gods like those. They're so part of the air we breathe that we don't even realize that they are objects of worship. There's so many. Yet, my assessment on a congregational level, I'm actually not aware of any Balaam-adjacent false teaching that is tolerated in our midst, among our membership. I could be wrong, but I thought long and hard about it. And so as I reflect on this passage, I'm actually praising God that unlike Pergamum, I think we have dealt with church members who wanted to cling to idols. But we need to be vigilant, especially against the ever-present Nicolaitan temptation to look for a path where I can still say I'm Christian, yet be accepted by the world. Finally, what must be done? What must be done? Verses 16 and 17. No surprise, perhaps, the call is to repent. So, repent. Repent means to turn around, to forsake our sin, and turn to God in obedience. Repent of what? Well, here it's for making space for the Nicolaitans instead of opposing them. Now, some quote-unquote forward-thinking folks in Pergamum may have protested. Say, I'm not going to be the judgmental guy in my church who tells my friend he's in sin for eating meat sacrificed to idols. Yet Jesus says, that's exactly what I want you to do. Second C.S. Lewis quote, two in one morning. Wow. C.S. Lewis said, progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be. And if you've taken a wrong turn, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. Being on the side of progress in Pergamum, true progress, or here in the North Shore, is often to be the first one who turns back to the fork in the road at which we made the wrong turn and tells others that they should do the same. Now maybe you say, but I'm not a pastor or an elder at this church. It's not my job to tell these tell other people that they've adopted an idolatrous lifestyle. 
But check it out. Who is this addressed to? Is it addressed to the pastor at Pergamum or is it addressed to the church at Pergamum? Church. It's the same in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul rebukes the church there, not just the pastor, for tolerating the unrepentant person in their midst. Where, the, where there's cancer in the church, it's the whole church's responsibility to deal with it, including the pastors and elders, but not limited to. Now, a caveat, okay? I'll tell you I feel nervous saying what I just said because it could embolden someone to become a heresy hunter. You know what I mean by that? YouTube is crawling with heresy hunters. A heresy hunter is the person who treats every sermon illustration and application point that they happen to disagree with as though it's a heresy. That lack of charity in the name of zeal for sound doctrine is a real problem in the American church in 2022. And trust me, the last thing I want to do is embolden another heresy hunter to rise up in our midst. Yet, the fact remains that there are new versions of Balaam's error that pop up in every generation of the church. And those teachings need to be opposed by the church firmly and decisively the way Ephesus did. I love what Dale Haug did last week. Uh, they're on vacation. He, he was preparing for growth group. And notice a question that we had written. I had written that seemed to imply God's grace is something we can earn. So he sent me an email, very respectful, charitable, yet saying, hey, Tim, the wording of this question is confusing to me and could potentially mislead group members. And he was exactly right. So I was able to send an email to all the growth group leaders clarifying the intent of the question. To me, that was a perfect example of the church doing its work to make sure false teaching doesn't creep in. He didn't wait for somebody else to do that. He took it on himself and did it himself. How serious is this to Jesus? Well, he threatens to come with the sword. Reflect on that for a moment. The same sword that was surely such a comfort to the church of Pergamum just a few verses back. They now hear that that sword of judgment could be turned in their direction if they don't repent. What would it look like for Jesus to come to a church with the sword? Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, I think we have an example of it. It's there that Paul tells that church that the rash of sicknesses and deaths that they've been dealing with in the congregation lately is actually because of their sinful practice around the Lord's Supper. He says, here's all the crazy stuff y'all are doing around the Lord's Supper. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. Other in other words, they've died. Y'all, this happens in churches. I've actually heard stories of it happening in churches even in our day. If sin is serious enough in the church and the church isn't doing anything about it, Jesus himself sometimes supernaturally comes to graciously cut out the disease before it spreads any further and infects others and drags others into death. But this call to repent here is not all warning. In fact, I'm not even sure it's primarily warning. There's great news here for those who conquer. Conquer meaning those who do respond to this letter by confronting the followers of the Nicolaitans and removing those who won't repent. For those conquerors, there's the promise of hidden manna. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. 
These conquerors, in other words, might be excluded from the food at the guild feasts that everybody else is eating, but there's a greater feast coming for them. Bread from heaven, sustaining them, even when it seems impossible to live in Pergamum without compromising into idolatry. That's the manna that God told Moses to save for future generations back in Exodus 16. Now it belongs to the overcomers who keep ourselves from idolatry despite persecution. And remember I said at the beginning that you'd use a colored stone for entry into the guild feasts? Well, they won't get one of those because they're not attending the guild feast, but they will get a white stone. Presumably a stone to be used for their entry into that heavenly feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb that will top every party in human history. And on that stone will be a new name. A name that, as with most biblical name changes, signals a new identity, new status, and a new relationship with the giver of the name. Imagine, imagine being given a new name from God that only you and him ever know that only he calls you, and it's a name that is perfectly tailored to what he has declared to be your new identity and your new personhood in him. What a gift for the conquerors. So our big idea today is this. As we hold on to the name of Christ, let's be vigilant against allowing idolatry to flourish in our midst. As we hold on to the name of Christ, let's be vigilant against allowing idolatry to flourish in our midst. Friends, the infection of idolatry is no small thing to Jesus. Offering worship to something or someone else in place of God or in addition to God, that is so serious that Jesus came to die for it. Because that was the only way it could be eliminated. The fact is, you and I, we are all idolaters. And so just like Balaam eventually died by the sword, in the Old Testament, we are all deserving of falling under the sword of God's wrath. Yet, Jesus said, I'll take that wrath for you. He stood between us and the sword, allowing the nails to be driven into his hands and feet, and spear to pierce his side, so that we wouldn't have to suffer that fate. When we look to the cross, and are filled with gratitude, but also with remorse that our idolatry required the perfect one to shed his blood? How, how can we treat idolatry casually in our midst? May we not. Like my eight nights in that hospital bed, let's let this be a time when we sit a little longer than we want to in self-examination to make sure that we're sure, that we're sure, that we're sure that we're not allowing any idolatry to fester. Let's take to the Lord the traces of laxity that we find upon self-examination and let's trust in Christ's blood to wash those seeds of idolatry away. Would you join me in prayer? Father, if it wasn't for the blood of your son, we'd be lost. That sword would be our fate. It's the fate that we deserve. So we praise you that you responded to our idolatry not by slaying us, but 
by sending your son to be slain in our place, standing between us and the wrath that we deserve so we could be with you forever and ever. In response to that, help us to be zealous against the idolatry, first and foremost, in our own hearts, and secondarily, in our midst as a congregation. May we love each other enough to call each other out on those seeds of idolatry that are starting to take root. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we sing our last song together, we want to join together in a prayer of corporate confession. As many times in Scripture...